0: Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of Torah in our mouth and the mouth of the people of the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of the people of Israel, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study the Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. Chapter 24, we'll read... I'm not going to read the entire chapter. We're going to read it just a little bit here. It says, Now Abraham was old, well on in years, and Adonai had blessed Abraham with everything. And Abraham said to his servants, the elder of his household who controls all that is his, Place now your hand under my thigh, and I will have you swear by Adonai, God of heaven, the God of the earth, that you not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Rather to my land and to my kindred shall you go and take a wife for my son for Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman shall not wish to follow me to this land. Shall I take your son back to land from which you departed? And Abraham answered him, beware and not return my son there. And Adonai, the God of heaven, who took me from the house of my father and from the land of my birth, who spoke concerning me and who swore to me saying to your offspring will I give this land he will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there but if the woman is will not wish to follow you you shall then be absolved from this oath of mine however do not do not return my son to there so the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham's master Abraham's master and swore to him uh, regarding this matter, then the servant took ten camels of his master's camels and set out with all the bounty of his master to his, in his hand and made his way to Aram Naharim, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city towards a well of water at evening time, the time when the woman who draw water come out. Now, I'm going to pause there and we're going to share some insights. First of all, I want to say that this portion is known as the portion of the bridegroom, the portion of the bridegroom. This is the portion that a man reads uh, as, as he's getting married. Some have a custom to read it before the, the wedding. Some have a, a, a custom to read it the day of the wedding, and others have a custom to read it after the wedding. Um, I if I remember, sir, memory serves me correctly, I think uh, Yaakov, when he was about to marry Chaya, when he came up to read from the Bema, it just so happened that it was this portion, was it? Yeah, okay, I, I thought I was remembering that correctly. So that was cool. So he was coming out to read the Torah, and it just so happened this was the Torah portion he was going to read right before he married Chaya. And so this reason this is uh, read, as it says in Me'am Luez, this section is known as a portion of the bridegroom. It's read when a bridegroom is called to the Torah because it contains the account of, of Isaac's marriage. And of course, the idea is that uh, the blessing of God would be upon the marriage that's about to happen, as it was upon the marriage between uh, Isaac and Rebekah. What's interesting about this story, there's lots of interesting parts about it, Um, but the interesting thing is, is that you have Abraham, who has a whole lot of people there that are his servants, people that work for him, people that they're not just servants. They're not just people that are in, under his employ. But if you recall that when, when Abraham had himself circumcised and he circumcised Ishmael, he circumcised everybody in his house, all the men in his house. So what you really have is you have an entire household of converts. Now, Eliezer, of course, is the chief among them. And at one time, Abraham thought that Eliezer was going to inherit him. Uh, Eliezer is a Canaanite. um, And so a lot of the sages have said that Eliezer really wanted his daughter to marry Isaac. But because he was a Canaanite, uh, that would not have been an appropriate uh, match. He needed to, Isaac needed a, a woman who was of more pure uh, stock or what have you, which may be true, but I do take issue with this because, from the standpoint of conversion, once somebody converts, they become a new creation. So there's no longer Canaanite genealogy once you convert. So although I I, I, I hesitate to differ with some of the idea of of the of of why he had to take uh, Rebecca and not Eliezer's daughter, I don't think it's because. Eliezer was a Canaanite because, again, once you convert, there's no Canaanite. You know, you can say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish, and I came from an Irish background. That's true. You're still of Irish DNA or whatever, or French or German DNA. But spiritually, your lineage has changed now to you're now a son and daughter of, and or daughter of Abraham and Sarah. So the question becomes, why Now, these people that were, were circumcised with, with uh, Abraham many years ago, nearly 40 years ago, certainly they have taken wives, or maybe they already had wives who converted with them, and surely they have given birth to children, daughters. Now, the daughters that are born to a couple, or the children that are born to a couple that have converted, once they're born, they're automatically Jewish. There's no conversion necessary. This is even true if a woman is pregnant, if she's with child, and she goes to the mikvah for for conversion, her her and her child are considered to have been mikvah. And so the question in my mind is, couldn't Abraham have found a daughter from amongst his congregation that could have married Isaac, and he sent for... Rebecca, who is from his family line, and perhaps that's what he was going after. Perhaps he was looking for something, a a girl from his lineage. Apparently that seems to be the case. But let's just think about it. He sent his servant Eliezer to find a wife for his son from a family that he knows is steeped in idolatry. That's why he left. His father was an idol shop. He owned Idols are Us. He owned Idols RS, and yet he sends his servant to go get a a daughter from that group. Now, I don't pretend to know all of the mysteries. I do think it's a mystery. I don't pretend to know all the mysteries of, of everything I just said and why it had to play out like that. But it does remind me of when Yeshua said he left the 99 to go find the one. And if you look at... The body of Messiah today, the, the bride of Messiah today, is primarily made up of people that were like Rebecca. They were steeped in idolatry. They were out there. They didn't know anything about Judaism. They didn't. You realize that Rebecca had a convert, right? She wasn't Jew. She wasn't a Jew. She was a, she, she had re, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah were all converts. All of them. She, she was an idol worshiper. In fact, there's commentary that says that when that Eliezer was hesitant to come in the house, by the wording of the story, a little bit later, we haven't read that part yet, but a little bit later in the story, he seems a little hesitant to come into the house. And Laban realizes that the reason he didn't want to come in the house is because there's idols in the house. So Laban goes and clears all the idols out and then... Eliezer is able to come in and have dinner. So the house is a house of idolatry. Now within that house of idolatry you have Rebekah who seemingly is like Batya, the daughter of Pharaoh who is living in a house of idolatry but is not buying into it. She's that rarity. And that is apparently who Abraham was looking for for his son. Now Abraham. Now something else here it says that he took ten camels, which means it wasn't just Eliezer that went, okay? He had a bunch of servants with Eliezer that went, and it says they left out. But then it says that uh, he took ten camels, and it says here, he made, the next verse is he made the camels kneel down outside the city towards a well of water at evening time. So the sages point out that, okay, he gets these ten camels, and he gets the servants, his whole entourage, and they set out, He said normally it would take many, many days to go from point A to point B. But Hashem sent an angel, and we're going to learn who this angel is in a second. Hashem sent a specific angel, and they made the trip in three hours, supernaturally. So when they left out, that's why it says the next verse, they came to the well in evening time. Now why is that important? Because it sets another precedent. When Yeshua got in the boat, they were immediately taken to the other side. He has this ability to... I don't know if you call it teleport or time warp or warp speed or whatever it is, but whenever this specific angel is with the group, they arrive way ahead of schedule. So let's look at a few things more. Abraham, it says the man of a good old age. Abraham was 137 years old, and he would live for another 38 years and have a lot more children. So uh, Hashem had obviously blessed him. It, Ma'am Loez says, Abraham was one of seven saints. Talking about how he was blessed. He was one of seven saints whose body never saw decay. Now, it's very, very interesting because it's, it says that uh, those seven saints whose bodies never saw decay were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, Miriam and Benjamin, and some would add an eighth person and say it's David, King David. So when the Messiah's body doesn't see decay, this is a precedent, but there's one difference. You know, it says uh, in Ma'am Loez, in fact, let me share this little quick insight if I can find it right quick. Um, Because I had somebody ask me a while back. um, They were having difficulty with the concept that Yeshua is a manifestation of Hashem, and that uh, he was crucified, and they were um, saying, uh, you know, if Yeshua is a manifestation of Hashem, he's divine, because they were trying to argue these were people that were Christians, and they they became Hebrew rooters, and, and then they became Messianics, and then from Messianics they got into more Judaism, and in trying to make their belief in Messiah kosher, so that it's accepted by the greater Jewish community because, you know, we, we're all about pleasing people. We've we got to have approval from man in order for us to feel good. And so they were trying to make that happen. And, and, in, and in trying to do that, they are trying to deny uh, 80% of what Yeshua said about himself and say that, in fact, all that was a lie, that, in fact, he's just a man, he's not divine at all. Because if we do that, then they'll like us, and that is really all that matters. And so they were arguing with me about the fact that I say that the Messiah was divine. And they, they said to me, Well, then how if he's divine, that means he's like, you know, like 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 unto Hashem. How can God die? Yeah, it's like arguing with a like a kindergartner. I mean, it's like well, define death. So here's what Ma'amwez says. It's that for all these accounts, we see that the saints remain whole in their graves. That is, these saints did not decay, they remain whole in the grave. Not whole meaning their body is like it was the moment they passed away. It says, for them, death is nothing more than the loss of the soul. See, what's divine about us is not this flesh. What's divine is the soul. The soul doesn't die. That's the point. So how did the Mashiach die? Well, he kind of didn't. Because we have to redefine death because death is just simply the, the soul separated from the body. But the soul lives to eternity. People say, you know, if you've got to believe in the Lord unless, if you want to live forever, it's like, well, actually, it's actually not accurate. You are going to live forever. That's not, whether you live forever or not is not really in question. The, the, what's really important is where are you going to live forever? Is it going to be Ganadan or is it going to be Gehenna? That's the question. So the question here is, is that when these people died, when these saints died, for them, the soul simply left the body. That's all that happened. That constitutes death. But what made Yeshua different was that he was resurrected, that these saints are still in in the ground, and they're still whole, but Yeshua's soul left the body and then came back to a glorified body, and it's not only didn't decay, it's not even there. It goes on to say that even though these saintly people are still in the grave, it says at least some part of their body has experienced some part of decay because everybody sins sometimes. So the big difference between Yeshua and these seven or these eight is that he was completely without sin, which is why his body didn't see decay at all. So, Abraham has a blessed life. I want to turn to the Midrash Rabbah, chapter 59, Saman 1, and read this section here. Because we're going to learn about what made Abraham have such a blessed life. So it says, now Abraham was old, well on in years. So it says, it is written, the crown of splendor is old age. It is found in the paths of righteousness. So Rabbi Mir once went to a place called Mamla. Yeah, Mamla. He saw that all the inhabitants there had black hair. Right? He said to them, are you perhaps of the house of Eli? Regarding whom it is written, all those raised in your house will die as young men. 1 Samuel 2, 2.33 They replied to him, Indeed it is so, Rabbi, pray for us. He said to them, Go and devote yourself to giving charity, and you will merit to achieve old age despite the curse. And what was Rabbi Mira's basis for saying this? The aforementioned verse in Proverbs, The crown of splendor is old age. And the verse goes on to elaborate, Where is old age to be found? How is it achieved? It is found in the path of righteousness. So the word righteousness is sadaka. And from whom can you learn this personal example? From Abraham, regarding whom it is written, He commanded his children and his household after him that they keep the way of Adonai, doing charity and justice. And for engaging in charity, he, he merited to achieve old age as it is said, Now, Abraham was old. Now, there's an insight to this in the Midrash Shabbat, and it says, Rabbi Mir taught the citizens of Mamla that they could attain the blessing of longevity longevity, despite their family curse by following the example of Abraham, whose long life was attributed to the merit of charity. Now, what we're going to learn is charity is giving of our finances. That's absolutely true, but it's not limited to that. So it says, Abraham did not merely give charity. He lived to be charitable. And he forged a legacy of charity that he imparted to his descendants as evidenced by the verse that the Midrash cites. Furthermore, when describing the nature of Abraham's legacy of charity, the verse states that Abraham would command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of Adonai, doing charity and justice. Charity done in the way of Hashem denotes acts of charity, such as consoling the bereaved and visiting the sick, which entail actually going on the way in order to meet with and benefit those in need. Such acts of charity are known as charity done with one's body, which is cons- considered superior to charity done with with one's money. In other words, it says here, Instead of simply dispensing cash to the needy, Abraham would actively involve himself in caring for them. Such acts combine both charity, that is, tzedakah, and kindness, that is, hesed. So Magan Avraham writes and observes that this quality of charity is evidenced in Rabbi Mir's carefully worded directive to the residents of Mamla, Instead of instructing them to simply give charity, Rabbi Miran joins them to, to devote themselves to charity. They don't need prayer, they need acts. You know, this could be one of the lessons that Hashem is trying to show us, because you see with this virus, a lot of people are starting to be more charitable and thinking about things, and I don't know about you, but I go to the store uh, uh, a little bit, and most of the shelves are empty, and... And I have purposely, I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to prop myself up here, I'm no saint, that's, that's sure, but I go on the shelf and I think, well, you know, I need, I need a few cans of this, but there's only six cans left, you know what, I'm just going to get two cans. I'm not going to get, you know what I'm saying, I'm going to leave something for somebody else in case they need it, right? There's no need to hoard, like hoarding, hoarding, by the way, is a lack of faith, it's a lack of faith. People that have hoarding, you know, there's people that have, that have hoarding personalities, they just want to hold everything, don't want to get rid of it, and their stuff piles up. That's, uh, that is, that is a, a, a sign that they have no faith, that when they're going to need something, they it won't, it won't be there. Um, and so that's one example, but we have to live out our faith. A lot of people want to pray, and this, this maybe the other lesson Hashem is teaching us, is that, look, your prayer and your faith is great, but I need you to start doing something. And that's something I need you to start doing is actually my word, my will, my Torah for your life. This is why Yeshua taught the way he did. It says in Ma'am Loez, if a person avoids sin, he deserves to receive his, 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 his uh, reward in this world. Let me read that again. If a person avoids sin, then he will receive his wor- reward in this lifetime. However, he does not receive any reward in the world to come, just for avoiding sin. Reward there is not given for merely avoiding sin, writes Ma'am In order to attain spiritual benefit in the Olam Chaba, avoiding sin is not enough. One must also do good. He must do acts of kindness to others and keep the commandments of Torah. This is why Yeshua said what you would have someone do to you, do to somebody else. So the lesson for us is we need to look for ways to serve people. Look for ways to do good. Look for ways. You know, we're going to get to the point where we won't be under this quarantine situation. And 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 uh, it is what it is. But there's going to come a time when it will be safe, again, to invite people over for... Uh, uh, Erev and for Havdalah and we need to be able to do that invite people in and welcome them in and, and, and have them come over that's a big part of what made Abraham Abraham was his hospitality and that could be why Abraham sent Eliezer to go find Rebecca because of the type of person she was she was an idolater to be sure But he knew that she had the type of character that could be molded into a great matriarch. He was looking for somebody who was a matriarch. Ma'am Loez writes about this when it talks about finding a a good spouse, a spouse of good character. I just want to read a couple of insights here, things that we can think about in our own life and how to be people of good character. He says, in order to determine the background of a family, the Talmud gives several signs. If a person accepts insults without replying, it can be assumed that he does come from a good family. That's called Facebook. If you can accept insults without replying, it means you've come from a good family. And I'm kind of serious about the Facebook thing. If somebody insults you on Facebook, you just delete. You just get rid of it. You just uh, you delete it. You block them. And you'll notice, by the way, the way that our society works today. It's like, well, you shouldn't block them. You should just, you should, That's not, that's no, just block them. Get rid of it. Why respond? Right? The Bible says don't argue with a fool. Right? It says here, however, if a person is always involved in arguments and disputes, one should avoid him. Good families do not involve themselves in arguments and refrain from embarrassing others. If you have somebody, they're always getting into fights, always getting into arguments. They always want to argue with somebody. Don't be around those people. The same is true if he calls others um, illegitimate children. There's another word used here, but illegitimate sons or other derogatory terms. This is a sign that, this, that his background is also questionable. Now, this is true. Why? Because the fault, listen to this, this is why we got to be careful. We're talking to each other, right? And we're talking to ourselves. Let me put it that way. Listen, the faults that one finds in others are usually their own. That is a hard pill to swallow. That's one of them giant horse pills. (laughs) But it's true. And we have to be careful. The thing that we find fault in others is very often the thing that God is trying to work on us. This is why, my friends, the best wisdom is just to be silent. To be quiet. Because if you never say anything, then you can't. You know, you're not going to be judgmental or whatever. You know, one should try to avoid marrying into a family which is totally ignorant of Judaism. Amen. Amen to that. This is an interesting insight I just want to share. Before a man marries a woman, he should get to know her brothers. Because children often take after their mother's brothers. So if your wife happens or a potential wife happens to have male siblings, you might want to just go out and have coffee with them. Finally, it says, it's customary to read this section when a bridegroom is called up to the Torah. It teaches that one should be careful when marrying and not be misled by mere physical attraction. That's why the seen had to be careful with me. That's what I told her. I said, honey, just pray about it. <laughs> it said, it is thus written, false is grace, uh, vain is beauty. A God-free woman, she should be praised. Proverbs thirty-one thirty. We read that every Friday night, right? One should ignore money and not marry into a prominent family merely to gain status. You know, it's sad, but people do that all the time. The main thing to seek, and this is really the, 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 the truth here. The main thing to seek is a God-fearing mate. Then one will be assured of having good children. That's what we're looking for, somebody who's God-fearing. I also want to share another uh, insight here from the Midrash Rabbah. Uh This is going to be in chapter 59 in Saman 4. This is the, the undignified rabbi. Um, I've, I've found this insight particularly interesting because we have a lot of fun at Sarshalom, and we have a lot of fun with different things that we do, and like the Megillah reading and so on and so forth. And um, Some people might look at that and go, well, I don't know, that just looks like it's a little bit too over the top. You know, they're just having... Too much fun, they need a, lot more, a, little bit, a little bit more somber, a little bit more holy, holy, holy. And um, this might bring a little clarity to those thoughts Those uh, that sister, sister, uh, sister Righteous might have out there. It says, uh, Rabbi Shmuel Bar-Rav Yitzhak opened his discourse on our passage by citing this verse. One who pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. Proverbs twenty one, twenty one. When Rabbi Shmuel Bar-Rav Yitzhak died, the one who would dance with three branches before brides at their wedding, there came forth winds and strong gusts that uprooted all the fine trees of Eretz Israel. And why was this so? Because he would pick branches from these trees and go before brides and juggle them to entertain them at their weddings. And the rabbis would say disapprovingly, why does he act this way? Why does he disgrace the honor of the Torah? So you've got this rabbi who would go and take these branches from these trees and he would use the branches somehow to dance and before brides at their wedding. And to do so joyfully and... Make a happy, merry time. And the other rabbis thought that he was being uh, undignified and he was disgraced in the honor of the Torah. But Rabbi Zara said to them, leave him alone. He knows what he's doing. In other words, it's calculated. Well, when Rabbi Shmuel died, the people went out to accord him honor by taking part in the funeral and they saw that a fiery branch descended from heaven. It took the form of a myrtle branch and made a separation between his coffin and the public who were gathered there. Then they said, See this old man who would stand and exert himself before all those brides. His branches now stand him in good stead." Now, again, there's some insights here. And it says the rabbis disapproved of Rabbi Shmuel's actions as he danced and entertained the brides. They didn't like his sense of humor. They didn't appreciate his comedy. They did not appreciate his comedy. They thought that he was being undignified, and he needed to be a little bit more, you know, whatever. Rabbi Shmuel was aware of the criticism that he was drawing, and yet, as Rabbi Zera pointed out, his actions were calculated. Rabbi Shmuel was willing to forgo any consideration of personal dignity and was even willing to shed the formal demeanor of a Torah scholar in order to elicit a smile on the face of a young bride. The question of propriety of Rabbi Shmuel's dance remained open until he died. It was then that the trees themselves sent a message, quote, Our very creation, the creation of all the trees in all the land of Israel was worthwhile if for nothing else than for Rabbi Shmuel to take one branch in his hand and dance with it. And the absence of the such a great man, our existence is meaningless, and we would rather be uprooted and cease to exist. Such is the value placed on bringing happiness to others. Such is the value placed on bringing happiness to others. You know, I once had a leader... This has been a number of years ago. Sent an email to me and suggest that I should cut my droshes down to 20 minutes and cut out the humor. He's no longer with us. (laughs) I'm serious. Can you believe that? Wow. If you want a 20-minute drosh with no humor, you are in the wrong place. You showed up to a pizza place wanting a hamburger. I don't know what's wrong with you. So it says the myrtle branch of fire that descended at Rabbi Shmuel's funeral made a statement as well. Those who do not properly appreciate the importance of gladdening the heart of a fellow Jew stand on a different plane than the one who does. You know, it's interesting that this is all in context of Abraham, because Abraham was all about gladdening the heart of people and making people feel welcome, and uh, we're going to get to this in, in just a second. I have no idea what time I started, so I don't know. I'm just going to go. So, um, okay, it's just, just the 10 of us. Midrash Shabbat, another insight here about Abram, Abraham in Psalm 24. Scripture states, Who shall ascend the mountain of Adonai, and who shall stand in the place of his sanctity? One with clean hands and a pure heart, who has not not taken his life in vain, and has not swore deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from Adonai, and just kindness from the God of his salvation. This phrase, who shall ascend the mountain of Adonai, is alluding to Abraham, of whom it is written, And go to the land of Moriah, bring him up there as an offering upon the mountains, which I shall show you. And who shall stand in his place of sanctity? This too is alluding to Abraham. Based on what is stated, Abraham arose early in the morning to the place. One with clean hands and a pure heart. The phrase, one with clean hands, alludes to Abraham who told the king of Sodom that he would not retain for himself so much as a thread or a shoe strap. The phrase, and a pure heart, also alludes to Abraham who declares it would be sacrilege to do such a thing. Who has not taken his life in vain, this refers to the life of Nimrod. And has not sworn deceitfully, this too refers to Abraham who declares, I have raised my hand to God the Most High. The psalm passage continues, He will receive a blessing from Adonai and just kindness from his God. So again, an insight here. It says the connection drawn by the Midrash, between the peculiar attributes of Psalm 24 and the verse written regarding Abraham is quite precise and revealing. It reveals the supreme levels of spirituality and character refinement that had been attained by Abraham. So it says the Midrash begins by focusing on the patriarch's astounding spiritual climb. He was the quintessential embodiment of one who ascends... The mountain of Hashem. How so? By bringing His Son up there for an offering. By bringing, it says here, the Akida. The angel informed Him at that point, now I know that you are a God-fearing person. It goes on to say here, a spiritual transformation. This is very important. It's a very much a caution for us. Something that I believe I kind of alluded to or maybe talked about in the last class on Wednesday night. A spiritual transformation, however, is sometimes accompanied by the adoption of a certain negative interpersonal attitude. This is social distancing in the negative sense. As one's level of observance intensifies and his spiritual sensitivities are heightened, there may be a tendency to react with disdain towards transgressors of the law. You know, you, you didn't know anything. I didn't know anything at a certain point. Then we knew a little something, and then a little something, and a little some some something, something. And a few years down the road, we know a whole lot more. And, you know, and we have a tendency... When somebody walks through the door, we want to bring them from knowing nothing to being a super Jew before Oneg when it took us years. And then we want to tell them, oh, that's not good enough. It's, your, your observance is not good enough. Become, it says we become develop a negative interpersonal attitude towards people. As the Midrash proceeds to illustrate, however, Abraham served as a model for a more noble approach. Now, wait a minute. Abraham, who's going to get above Abraham? Who's going to walk up to Abraham and say, I don't know, is your, I'm not sure if your tent is kosher enough for me to have dinner here. He offered his son on Mount Moriah. So how did he treat other people? What well, says here, there are a few who react There are a few who reach, rather, spiritual plateaus that Abraham did. I should say so. At the other end of the spectrum, by the way, who of us have stood before God and pleaded for Sodom and Gomorrah? Literally stood before him. I'm not talking about in the Amidah. I'm talking about he's right there. You're talking to him. Anyway, it says, At the other end of the spectrum stood the Sodomites who were basically unparalleled in their wickedness. Yet we find that the holy Abraham did not treat the latter with outright rejection. Instead, he displayed con- compassion and concern for their wretched souls. It is to this aspect of Abraham's character that the Midrash now alludes who may stand in the place of his sanctity. Refers to a righteous individual who, despite his lofty status, will nevertheless act with restraint towards sinners, resisting any temptation to view them with contempt this is the model abraham showed us this is why yeshua showed us the same model this is why he ate with sinners and he didn't he didn't say you know he didn't criticize their observance and you know um there's there's a a some of y'all are aware of the uh a uh, series called The Chosen, and I've watched a few episodes. It's pretty good. There's things I wish they'd done differently, but, but I don't want to be critical. It's, it's actually pretty good. But one of the best episodes that I saw, or probably the best episode, was Yeshua has healed Mary Magdalene, and she's gone from being this demon-possessed harlot to... Now she's a righteous woman, and she's trying to have the first Arab Shabbat that she's ever had, probably, or maybe haven't had in many, 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 many years. And she's all transformed, and she's there. She's got the table set, and she's got a little paper there with some of the barakas and a little, I guess, maybe the order of service on it. And she goes, somebody knocks on the door, and she goes to the door, and she lets in. Two Talmudim. I forget which ones it were. And uh, I think it was the sons of Zebedee, but I could be wrong. But then she's getting ready to start. She's kind of fumbling through it. And she goes, and here's another knock on the door. She ans- opens the door. It's Yeshua. And he said, hey, I just thought somebody said this might be a good place to come for Shabbat. And the two, those two are or his Talmudim, and they stand up. Welcome, Rabbi. And, of course, she recognizes him because she didn't know who he was. She recognizes him as the man who had healed her from this demon possession. So he comes and sits down at the head of the table, and she's got her little paper there. And she's fumbling around, and she looks at him like, uh, Rabbi, would you like to uh, lead the Arab? And he's like, nope, no, no. And he says to her, which I think is so interesting because he's obviously been to Sar Shalom. <laughs> he said, nope, this is your house. You do it. And she proceeds to fumble through the uh, order of service, which they did a really great job on that aspect. They, I don't, they didn't show the whole thing, but they did pretty good from what I saw. But I thought, you know, that's the heart of Hashem. He didn't say, he didn't walk in there and, oh, I don't know. I need to see, I need to see. You got two sets, you have two sets of dishes, right? Because I can't eat off something that's not... He didn't walk in and say, what kind of sitter do you have, actually? No, what barakas do you say? No, he just sat down. Why? Because he was looking at somebody who just a little bit ago was in the red light district, and now she's trying to lead an of Shabbat. See, that's the heart of Abraham. All that other stuff. All that perfection and all those stringencies, that'll all come in time just like it did with us. I didn't always have this coat. I know. Thank you very much. My wife bought this for me a, uh, a few years ago for Hanukkah, but I didn't always have this. You know what I'm saying? You, things, things, you, you, you pick up mitzvahs. And and by the way, I don't have to wear this coat. I wear it because I look good in it. I'm the most humble man on earth. (laughs) I like it. So I wear it. But anyway, Zach and Yosef wanted to wear a gold one. I rebuked him. I said, can't do that. They wear gold, gold braid and all the shine. So it says, just go on. It says, Abraham conducted himself in this manner, investing much effort in Sodom's welfare. Even after negotiating with Hashem and the length over their future, he still did not desist, seeking their bereavement, or their betterment, rather. Instead, it says he rose up early in the morning and he went back to the place. He was hoping that maybe there might be another chance for him to make teshuva. Now, there's a lot more I could say about, um, about Rebecca and her, her character and her nature, but I just want to share just a couple more things just really quickly. Why did Isaac, he couldn't leave. Why could he not leave? Because he was a living sacrifice. The reason Isaac was the only patriarch that could not leave the land of Israel. And, the re- and even during famine. And the reason was is because he was a, a living sacrifice. Which teaches us a very important lesson. That when we become a living sacrifice, there is naturally restrictions to our life. Those restrictions are called Torah. It's interesting that when, he went, when Abraham sent um, his servant to go find a bride for the Akedah, Rebekah was unique amongst the matriarchs and that she was the bride of the son who was offered by the father. And so it says, the, what were symbolic about these gifts? Because he sent the, the nose ring and the bracelets and, the, and it was a half shekel. It says the half shekel that the precious stone weighed symbolized the half shekel that the Jew would give in the census. The two bracelets symbolized the two tablets, which would be Binding upon Rebecca's descendants, and the 10 shekels that they weighed would symbolize the Ten Commandments. This alluded to the fact that Rebe- Rebecca's descendants would be the ones to receive the Torah. So it's interesting that when it came time to give a gift to his bride that would basically betroth her to him, that gift was the half shekel and the Torah, atonement and the Torah. That's what we, that's what Yeshua has given us to make us the bride of Mashiach. He's given us the atonement shekel and the ten, and, and, and the Torah, and he says, now you belong to me. And he found me, I don't know about you, but he found me in a place of idolatry. He found me in a place of filth. That's where he found me. And so I have the shekel and a half shekel and I have the, the ten commandments. That's where he found me. Now, one last thing. I just want to share this last thing here. So there's a whole lot more I, I have to to say, as I said a moment ago, about Rebecca and her personality and so many good things. But I'm out of time. I just want to share this. It says, when Laban, when his sister came in and she had all this fine jewelry on, because that nose ring was like several carats, it was very expensive emerald, actually. Um, he saw that and he realized this is a wealthy person. So Laban has always been a bad guy. And Laban was going to go out and he was going to kill Eliezer and take all of his stuff. But Eliezer discerned this ahead of time and he levitated himself and his camels over the spring of water. Now, the question becomes, why did he do that? And more important, what relevance does this have on the fact that Yeshua walked on water? Because there's a lot of things that Yeshua could have done. Yeshua wasn't into doing little circus tricks. He wasn't just, you know, he could have done a lot of things. But he wasn't just walking around saying, you know, I think I'll just walk on water today. There was a reason why he walked on water And the reason he walked on water is because the accusations against Yeshua were, most often, he's doing all this vis-a-vis demons in the occult. These are all magic things that he's doing. They're not from God. So, in order to dispel that, he walked on water. You're thinking to yourself, what? This is what it says. It says, those versed in the occult, like Laban... Those versed in the occultic arts know that they are powerless when they come in contact with water. When Laban saw that Eliezer was levitating over water, he knew that it could not be by the power of the magical occult because the magical occult has no power over water, which is interesting because the waters covered the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So he knew that it had to be the power of God and not the power of demons. And so he left him alone. So Yeshua walked on water to say say that my power doesn't come from what's below. My power comes from what's above. Baruch haba b'shem adonai.